It's hard to believe that anyone would hear this story and then come to the conclusion that there was some sin or disobedience on the part of John and Kim's life that would lead to this. It was just unthinkable. And yet it's just that very thing that Job's friends have been saying for 29 nauseating chapters. Job, this, this greatest sheik of all the sheiks of the East, who was the wealthiest, Scripture says he was blameless, he was upright, he feared God, he shunned evil. And then he experienced this inexplicable storm. Now, we know why this storm hit. We know. We've read chapters 1 and 2. It's very clear to us, the reader. Job didn't read chapters 1 and 2. And, of course, neither did his friends. And it was just all taken away. All of it was taken away. His wealth... His health, he sits on the ash heap, scraping the boils that have infested his body. His three best friends come, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. They were doing really well for seven days. And then they opened their mouths. And for 29 chapters, they argued with Job as to why this suffering has occurred. And they have just held fast. They've been entrenched in this this fossilized version of the law of the harvest. Job, the reason why you're suffering is because some sin has occurred. If A, then B. When you see corn growing, it's because someone planted corn seed. This suffering has emerged from the field of your life because somehow you planted seeds of sin and it's come back. You reap what you sow. If A, then B. And they just won't give that up. And Job fights back and he says, show me my sin. I have not sinned. I'm blameless and I'm upright. I'm a fear of God. I'm shunned evil. No, no, I'm not. And this goes back and forth. Nasty words for 29 nauseating chapters. And then do you know what happened? They stopped talking. Listen to that. That's the sound of Job and his friends who stopped talking. And I'll tell you, it's it's rather refreshing after 29 chapters. Yeah, they stopped talking. And then do you know what happened after that? Well, I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to turn to Job chapter 32. Job chapter 32 You find that on page 376 of your church Bibles. We're going to hear from a, a mysterious fourth friend who's kind of been waiting in the wings. He's been listening patiently. Now he's frustrated. Job chapter 32 says So these three men stopped answering Job. 
because he was righteous in his own eyes. That means Job won the argument. That's what that means. He won the argument. Whoever stops talking first loses. You know what I mean? Of course you do. So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Job wins the argument, but his question remains unanswered, right? And then verse 2 says, But Elihu, son of Barachel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now, Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. Elihu, this mysterious fourth friend emerges on the scene, Elihu. Interestingly enough, his is the only Israelite name of the group. And some Bible teachers think that maybe his name is a a variation of Elijah. And, And it's thought that maybe because he's the only Israelite, he's the one who is going to be serving as the forerunner when Yahweh, when the Lord God begins to speak, which we'll talk about next week in Job 38. But he's kind of come as a buffer. He is, if you will, the, kind of the John the Baptist. He's going to speak before the Lord emerges on the scene. And, and he speaks wisdom that has not yet been heard previously in this book. He speaks wisdom. And I want us to listen to what Elihu has to say and his wisdom especially as it pertains to the question, just what is the purpose of the righteous who suffer? What, what is all that about? Why do righteous suffer? And I want us to listen. I want us to listen first to Elihu's wisdom about himself. I want us to listen then to Elihu's wisdom concerning Job. And then most importantly, oh, stay with me on this journey. We're going to be hearing Elihu's wisdom about the Lord, about himself, about Job, and about the Lord. Let's first talk about the wisdom that he says concerning himself, which is, which is mainly that which is mainly that old people don't have all the wisdom. <laughs> That's his wisdom. He says this in verse 6, I'm young in years and you are old, and that is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom, but it is the spirit in a man, and and look at the footnote in the NIV. I really think that's a capital S, the Holy Spirit in a man. It is the Holy Spirit, the breath of the Almighty, that gives him understanding. It is not only the old who are wise. Just because you're old doesn't make you wise. Just because you're old just, just means you're just getting old. Doesn't necessarily mean you're wise. It's not only the aged who understand what is right. 
That's what Elihu says about himself. He's been listening. You are my mentors. You are, you are the senior leaders in the community. And yet, I haven't been hearing wisdom that is commensurate with your senior leadership. In fact, this is just tissue-thin dribble that's coming out of your mouth. This doesn't make sense at all. This, and, and, and so, and I've just become so frustrated. I've just got to speak. I've just got to speak. That's what chap, the rest of chapter 32 is about. In he, verbose Hebrew, Hebrew poetry, Elihu says, I've got something to say and I want to say it now. And, and, and he has been listening. He has been listening because throughout the next six uninterrupted chapters, he's got a lot on his mind. Throughout the next six uninterrupted chapters, Elihu quotes back some of the phrases that Job said and the friends. So he's paying attention. He's been doing some active listening. And, and, and yet at the same time, he's passionate. That's why he says he's angry. He's passionate. And then, then he says, but I, you know, I'm not, I don't want to pile on top of you, Job. I'm just like you. I'm, on the, I, I'm, I'm just like you. I, I, chapter 33, verses 6 and 7. I, I am just like you before God. I, too, have been taken from clay. No, Job, don't be intimidated by what I'm about to say. You know, I, I'm really, really tenuous about this. It, you know what? Whenever you're talking to someone who's suffering, it's, it's probably a good idea for you to say, you know, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. <laughs> Especially if you're going to say something that's, you know, potentially inflammatory. The phrase, I could be wrong, can go a long way. And that's Elihu. No fear of me should alarm you, nor should my hand be heavy upon you. So that's the wisdom that he shares about himself. He's listening, the wisdom of listening intently, the wisdom of being able to really analyze and think through what's been said, the wisdom of letting others go first and paying attention, the wisdom of knowing your own limitations. Uh, wisdom knows what it doesn't know. The wisdom of saying, you know, I don't want to gang tackle you here, but I do have something on my mind, and, and I could be wrong. And I mean, he does this for a, practically a chapter and a half. And it's like Job's going, okay, say something then, okay? All right, I'll say something. And he says, okay. And we move to the wisdom that he gives to Job. He says, you know, I, I, I could be wrong, and I, I don't want to what, say it. What is it? Okay, here it is. You're wrong. I could be wrong, but I think you're wrong. You, chapter 33, verse 12, but I tell you in this you are not right, for God is greater than man. Why do you complain to him that he answers none of man's words? Job, you've said that in your suffering that God's not talking, but Job, you're wrong. God is talking. God speaks. You may not like the language in which he's speaking, but he's speaking. Sometimes God speaks through special revelation, through visions and dreams and prophecies. We all know about that. But Job, sometimes God speaks through suffering, through pain, 
That's what's behind verses 19 and 20 and 21. Or a man may be chastised on a bed of pain with constant distress in his bones so that his very being finds food repulsive and his soul loathes the choicest meal. His flesh wastes away to nothing and his bones once hidden now stick out. God does speak, Job. And I think he's speaking through your pain. And I cannot help but remember what C.S. Lewis once said. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God's speaking, Job. But you're not listening. You're not listening. And the reason, he's wanting to summons you, but you're not paying attention. What's he say? Well, you, he's trying to say something, but you're not, you're not listening because you're too busy summonsing him. You're too busy talking. You're too busy summon, trying to summons him into your courtroom. Remember how Job tells his friends, oh, how I wish I could give God a summons and make him appear before court and make him say what it is that he needs to say as to what sin I committed to cause this suffering. Job, God's not going to come into the courtroom of your petty demands. And do you know why? Because... He's God. That's why. And for you to summons him into your courtroom would mean to imply that somehow you have control over him to get into you. And it doesn't work like that because he's God. Chapter 34, verse 13. Who appointed him over the earth? Who put him in charge of the whole world? If it were his intention and he withdrew his spirit, that's his Holy Spirit, I believe, and withdrew his Holy Spirit and breath, all mankind would perish together and man would return to dust. Job, you're not going to get God summoned into your courtroom because he's God. And, and besides, Job, you don't trust him to give you justice anyway. Haven't you said, haven't you complained that, that God is not giving you justice? I don't, I, Eli who says, I don't get it, Job. How is it that you can think you're going to summon God into your courtroom asking him, demanding that he give something you don't think that he's capable of giving, huh? How's that working out for you? Chapter 35 Verse 14 says, how much less than will he listen when you say that you do not see him, that your case is before him and you must wait for him. That's like, that's like a kid saying to his mom, mom, I don't like your cooking. Will you make me something to eat? Doesn't work. You don't have to change your tune, buddy. Should God, chapter 34, verse 33, should God then re reward you on your own terms? When you refuse to repent, you must decide, not I. So tell me what you know. Go ahead. Tell me what you know. You hear that sound? That's the sound of silence, which means Job can't answer Elihu. This young man is speaking wisdom to him. 
you're not going to get God summoned into your courtroom because he's God, okay? It's just not going to happen. But maybe, just maybe, you will see God if you enter into the sanctuary of his grace. God's not going to be obligated because he's not a debtor. He's a creditor. And he's not going to reward you on your own. When you refuse to repent, repent of what? Repent of what? Oh, this is, this is where Elihu just really, with the surgeon's scalpel, just gets to the heart of this issue with Job. And it's simply this. Repent of what? Repent of self-righteousness. That's what. You see, <laughs> you see, Elihu is not so much concerned about what sin may or may not have caused Job's suffering as much as he is the sin which may emerge because of Job's suffering. You see that? Yeah, Job's friends are saying, Job, you, you suffer because you sin. You suffer because you sin. If A, then B, law of the harvest. You su- Job says, no, I have not sinned. I'm blameless and I'm upright. Therefore, God owes me an explanation. What's that? That's the law of the harvest. If A, then B. These, Job, you're, you're, you're just the same as your friends. You're just the same as them. For you to demand that God explain himself to you because you've been blameless and upright, how is that different? How is that formula different? And that's what you need to repent of. Your self-righteousness. Oh, is that a word for us? Pastor serves at a church for years and years and years. Then gets sick. Or then the congregation decides for whatever reason they don't want to follow that pastor's leadership. The pastor says, God, I've served you faithfully. I've preached your word. I've done all of this for you at the sacrifice of my time and family. And and now this, what's the implication? The implication is, God, you owe me. Or maybe someone within the congregation they, they come to Christ and, and then they grow in Christ and they become a small group leader or, or maybe they go on a missions trip or then they start leading missions trips and then they become a deacon or an elder and, but then their business falls off or wanes or, or something happens to their family and that person says, God, I've served you. I've trusted you. And now this, and what's the implication? God, you owe me. Job says, God, I've been blameless. I've been upright. I fear you. I shun evil. And not once have I ever asked, what's in it for me? And Elihu says, so what are you saying, Job? I want to know what's in it for me. And Elihu says, Job, you better watch your attitude, buddy. You better watch your attitude. And he says, he says in Job 36, 21, beware of turning to evil which you seem to prefer to affliction. And you know what's worse than suffering, Job, is for you then to turn against God in your suffering. 
beware, beware of turning to evil, which you seem to prefer to affliction. I'm, I'm more concerned about the sin that may be emerging from your suffering than any sin that may have caused your suffering. No, no. Because you can't undo the divorce. And you can't undo the disease. So you've got to make a decision how it is you're going to respond to the God of this universe. And so the question, the wrong question, really when we're thinking about it, the wrong question is, the the wrong question is, is, is what did I do to deserve this? It may not be about you. The right question is, what is God teaching? What is God doing? Not what did I do, but what is God doing? There's where we hear wisdom from Elihu. And it's as if in chapter 37, while Elihu is speaking, it's almost like on the horizon there's this thunder boomer that happens and Elihu responds and says, listen, listen, Job. Listen to the roar of his voice, to the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He unleashes his lightning beneath the whole earth and sends it to the ends of the earth. Job, we're not talking about some pagan Canaanite idol here. We're talking about the Lord God, the creator and sustainer of heaven and earth, the one who, who makes the weather. Job, do you know anything about weather? Do you? Do you know anything about weather? Verses 14 and 15, listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds and make his lightning fly? Job, do you even know anything about meteorology 101? No, you don't, do you? So, so see, you're not even qualified to be the weatherman. How in the world are you going to have a conversation with the weather maker? Maybe you should just trust him. Maybe. And then Elihu says this, and this is, here's the message. All right? Here's the message. If you forget any other verse we've talked about, this is it. This is it. Job chapter 37, verse 13, I believe is the core of Elihu's message where he says, Job, God brings the clouds to punish men or to water his earth and show his love. Would you say that with me? He brings the clouds to punish men or to water his earth and show his love. Again, he brings the clouds to punish men or to water his earth and show his love. One more time. He brings the clouds to punish men or to water the earth and show his love. One storm, one storm, but our God is such an awesome God, he can have two divine purposes, and from our perspective, it's virtually impossible to figure out which of those divine purposes may be behind a given storm. But our God is so awesome that he can perform both purposes with the same storm. And what Elihu does here is that he invites Job to reconsider the storm that has so disrupted his life. Job, could this storm serve possibly a more benevolent purpose? Could it? Could God be showing you his love? Through this storm, could he? Is it possible for God to be pleased with your life and at the same time not finished with your life, Job? Could this storm be not for punishment of sin, but rather refinement of righteousness? Is it possible for me to believe that because I'm in Christ, whatever happens to me happens by the grace of God 
and comes into my life as a gift of God, whether that's prosperity or whether that's poverty or affliction. Is it possible? Is it? Is it possible for me to see that in Christ, even God's storms are an expression of his grace? When our younger son, Brandon, was 18 months old, uh, we were on a visit to Tulsa. Sarah was on a missions trip, and I took the boys to Tulsa. And uh, there at our family home, uh, in the living room, he was just kind of getting the walking thing going, teetering back and forth here and there. And I mean, he did a timber, 18 months old. He fell right into the edge of our fireplace hearth, cut him wide open. I mean, it was messy. We went to the emergency room. And the doctor, ER doctor said, come on back here with me. I need you to, uh, I need your help. And so I went back and I had to strap Brandon in a papoose. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You strap his body in, strap his head back and try to convince him that that's for his good. An 18-month-old. And then he sees this strange man with gloves and a mask and a cleaning solution Rubs the very thing that hurts, and then he sees this strange man with a needle and syringe, and he gets poked again. Try to, try to explain that to an 18-month-old, will you? Try to do that. And then this strange man proceeds to take out needle and thread and sew him up. Try to explain that, that that's, try to explain that, that somehow that's for the benefit of an 18-month-old. Is there anything I could have said? to Brandon to somehow help him understand what was going on. No, there's nothing, nothing, not at all. It's impossible to explain to an 18-month-old child already in pain why more pain is necessary for healing. He just had to trust me. All he knew was that his dad was there. That's all he knew. Randy, are you saying that I'm an 18-month-old toddler? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I am. And I'm saying that just because, just because Brandon didn't know what the doctor was doing doesn't mean that the doctor didn't know what he was doing. And perhaps God sent this storm to bring Job even closer to him. You want to see, what's it take to bring a man who's blameless, upright, fears God, shuns evil? I mean, what does it take to bring that kind of a person even closer to God? Well, Read, read Job. That's what it takes. That, are, do you want that? You want to be closer to God? Some of you may be thinking, Randy, are you saying that God took John and Kim's boy away to bring them closer to him? I would not stand here to presume to probe the depths of God's wisdom. But here's what I do know. I know that God sent his only son to bring us closer to him. I know that. I know that 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. I know that he brings the clouds to punish men or to water his earth and show his love. And I know that the storm that punished Christ for my sins is the same storm that brought the love of God to my heart. And unlike Brandon, who did not have a clue what was going on in that emergency room, Jesus knew exactly what was happening while he was strapped to that Roman cross. He knew. And now, as Christians, 
our Lord, who has defeated death, he calls us to walk in his footsteps. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. And that somehow this tragedy, whether death or disease or divorce, can be put in the hands of the sovereign God of this universe. And he can transform it into that which will bring him glory. And that's why Peter says... In 1 Peter 1, 6, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Church family, when God sends his people storms, it's not to punish them. He, God's already punished someone. His name's Jesus. But God sometimes sends his storms to show his love. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world will stand amazed. Watch his methods. Watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands. While his tortured heart is screaming and he lifts beseeching hands how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. Father God, you are the Lord of the storm, the Lord of our storm. And as we remember Jesus in Holy Communion, we, re we remember that he was punished by the storm of the cross, but it is that very cross that reveals your love to us. Thank you.